0: Welcome, good evening. Um, men, ladies, cats. Um we like to notify the listeners. Those of you who have listened to the Shir and feel you might be alone in the uh, circles, Baruch <laughs> Hashem, Kenai Nahara, Ken Yirbo. We get a weekly stats on our Shir, and it averages approximately a thousand people a week downloading this year. So, Baruch Hashem, other people are also benefiting from this year. Which technically makes me more nervous. And as I'm talking in front of that many more people. That's <laughs> quite a scary thought. Eh, been there, done that, got the t shirt. Um unfortunately I was one of my one of my uh, attributes is not stage fright. My father Allah Shalom, was a cousin, as you might know, you might have heard before. I hope Mirza Hashem for his third yard site, which is Dalal El, this year will be August 22nd. The reason I know that so well is because we're making a wedding on El, August 23rd. So I'm hoping Mirza Hashem to be able to give out a CD of some of his music, some of his concerts. Bilinader. We are trying to work on it, we're trying to collect from the family. Anyone that he sang at their weddings, etc. Thomas' his birthday, actually. of Thomas. We'll talk about it then. Tonight, we'd be amiss not to pay a moment of tribute to Rabbi Yosef Weinberg, Elvishalom, Yosef Halevi, passed away this afternoon a man that was extremely dedicated and devoted to the yeshiva um, passed away he was quite ill for a while funeral tomorrow morning, passing, I believe, 770, Eastern Parkway, about 10 o'clock in the morning. This Shabbos is an interesting Shabbos. It finds itself between Gimel Thomas and yud Thomas. Now, up until 18 years ago, it was a very, very, very exciting Shabbos. Exciting in that Yimel Tamaz was the Schalt of the Geula, Yidbeis Tamuz was the Geula from the the birthday of the Fidik Yidbez Yidbeis, And therefore, this Shabbos is always a very, very, very special day. Today we use this day, this Shabbos, as a reflection, to reflect... Children, Baruch Hashem left to camp this week. They should all be safe and happy throughout the summer. Should be healthy. Should be a prosperous summer. The children benefit and learn. The Rebbe was very, very the Rebbe encouraged very much children going to camp to be in the Sviva 24 hours, even more than Yeshiva. Whereas a the Yeshiva they go to and they come back home in the evenings. Here they're in 24 hours soaking up the influence the positive influences of the camps and the Rebbe even went as far as going to visit Gan Yisrael more than one occasion just to explain for a moment the Rebbe's approach to these things the Rebbe in those days the highways were not what they are today the journey to yourself Swan Lake, and back was quite a journey. And the Rebbe spent time in camp. They the showed the Rebbe around the camp. And then the Rebbe had a journey home. It was months later. Months later, literally. Not several, not two, three, but many months later, I believe the Rebbe told Rabbi Yaakov Yehuda Hecht, no relation, he ran camp Amunah, I believe he told it to him, I had just made up the time from when I went to visit camp. That was the Rebbe said that the time that he traveled, although the Rebbe sat and learned in the car throughout, or said to Hillam, or whatever the Rebbe did, the Rebbe did not waste, the Rebbe was not idle in that time. But it was not um, quality. It was not the quality time that the Rebbe spends by his desk. And therefore he had to make up that time. And since the Rebbe has such a rigorous schedule, every moment is accounted for. So obviously the Rebbe added into his schedule another levy, which he taxed himself with, <laughs> so that ultimately he could make up and compensate for the time that he missed. I once had a mashpia, I should live and be well, who told us that the Rambam says you should sleep 8 hours a night the Rambam was a very very bright man and we go according to the Psaq of the Rambam then he said you sleep 8 hours a night and you live 99 years then you slept 33 years can you live with that you slept for 33 years well that they went my 8 hours I just don't, I never enjoyed it hours again. I mean, I've done it probably, but I never really enjoyed it properly. He took it, he took the whole taste out of my mouth. Pashas Chukas. Chukas. Zeis Chukas Atreida. This is the Chukim of the Teda. This is. The super-rational command of the Tera. Now, in essence, he's telling us, this is the super-rational command of the Paraduma of the Red Haifer. Why, then, does Tera say, referring to it as if this was the entire Tera? And technically, we should spend the evening just discussing that itself. That in its own merits a full hour, two or three of discussion as how is this the chukas of the Tehra. Ironically, well not ironically really, I guess that would be the wrong adjective. Ultimately, the Parsha, is so full with so many other things, we'd be amiss to discuss only the Chukas Mateina. There are three mitzvahs in this parsha: The Red heifer, Paraduma. The mitzvah, the ritual impurity caused by a corpse. And the laws of sprinkling the water. An impure, impure person caused by impurity of a corpse. That's all there is. But yet, the Eden arrive in Edom and they want to pass the land of Edom. The water ceases to flow because of the passing of Miriam Hanavia. How scary can that get? And because the water ceased to flow, the ultimate sin is committed by the master, committed by the leader of the Jewish nation, Moshe Rabbeinu, as he smites the stone instead of speaking to it then the Jews run into another dilemma and because they begin to speak poorly of Meshe Rabbeinu and of the Almighty God A snake is set loose a serpent, and the serpent goes around biting everyone that spoke badly and immediate death so much so much happening in this Pasha what was wrong with this picture what is? Not jiving with this situation. What were the Jews actually considering and thinking when they start this revolution against Moshe Rabbeinu? But when they do come to terms and the water is flowing once again because Moshe smites the stone instead of talking to it, what a phenomenal happening! Yashir Yisrael, as shira the jews to me sing a shira and this is the shiras of bair Miriam, one of the 10 shiras and we await the 10th which will be with mashiach beno the shira prior to this was by kreysiams of the splitting of the sea why only these two miracles prompted song So many other miracles where the Jews were saved and helped by the Almighty God. The miracle of the water flowing from the stone and the miracle of the water splitting are the only two that prompt the Jews to sing. The fact is that these two miracles had a special behavior That did not happen with any other miracle. By all of the miracles, when the Jews were in a situation of danger from the other nations, there was a miraculous Savior in a way that the Jews staged war, in a way that they saw a miracle of a battle, but a battle nonetheless that they fought. However, when it came to the splitting of the sea, prior to that, the pasuk tells us, "Hashem yilochem lochem viatem tacharishun." The Almighty will stage your battle, and you remain silent. Silent. The Jews needed to do nothing the Egyptians were upon them the water in front of them the desert from both sides to the right and the left and they were total, total despair and they were told do nothing and you will be saved and the same takes place in our parsha. the Jews see the Almighty fighting for them and they know nothing about the battle and this miracle happened in such a way that it showed how the almighty loved the jews even more not just saved them from their enemies but did it in a way that they needed to do nothing not to lift a finger not to put a finger in cold water this gave cause to song Miracles. What is a miracle? What brings about what prompts a miracle? There was the holy Rujina, the Rujina Rebbe, who had a chosid, who was very wealthy. And this wealthy chassid had a factory business. In the factory he had a young lad, a 15-year-old boy, an non a Gentile, who worked very, very diligently for him and he compensated this. <laughs> the young fellow unfortunately had lost his father at a young age. His mother remarried. His father was never very nice to him either. But now the stepfather was horrific and the stepfather came with stepbrothers and they decided that they had to be literal about it and being stepfather and stepbrothers they used to step all over him they used to knock the snot out of him he had a miserable existence one day the father the stepfather told the stepsons tie him up and beat him up, I want to watch And he watched this debacle, this this horrific nightmare. The child was at a loss with himself. When he finally was able to come, recuperate When he came back to consciousness, he took a rope. He went to the factory. It was a soap factory. It was boiling hot vats of soap. He went to the beam on top of the vat and he hung himself. In the morning, the, the Jew comes to his factory, he's the first one to open up and, lo and behold this horrific sight. What to do? There's no way that anyone's going to believe this was not an anti Semitic action. For those of you who don't know what anti Semitic means, there was a very interesting clip today. I believe it was here in New York, I believe it was in Manhattan, Elmo, that wonderful Sesame Street, colorful, beautiful character, a guy dressed as Elmo was prancing around in Manhattan, cursing and slandering the Jews. Read against it, there's a paper, there's an article, there's I don't know what, against the Jews, There's steal, they this, they that. It's horrific, horrific. Arri- Elmo, how far do they want to stoop? So this ge- this gentleman knew that if he is going to take this body anywhere, he's going to be finished. So he climbed up with a knife and he cut the string and the body fell into the vat and became totally dissolved. But it didn't end there. One of the very, very loving neighbors saw and noticed the boy entering the factory at night. And nobody witnessed him going out. So they said, oh, he disappeared? The Jew must have had a hand in this. And immediately the Jew was going to be arrested and tried. He ran to the Regina and he told the Regina the story and the Regina told him, I will take care of it for you don't worry and they came to the trial and the priest was there very excited to start a program and the witness got up and said how he saw him come in and the father, the stepfather got up and cried and said how kind of fine young fellow how much he was loved by the family each one of the stepbrothers delivered a tear-jerking sermon practically about this poor passed away brother killed by the Jews as the priest himself started to give his diabolic dialogue to try to put the nail in the coffin for this Jew and the rest of the town the door burst open the dead boy walked into the court Place froze. Everything was silent, and the boy started to curse and scream. You're going to talk bad and blaspheme this Jew, the only one in the world that was ever nice to me, that was ever kind to me, that ever did a nice, said a nice word, or treated me so well. And these people, you're going to believe they used to beat me and used to harass me, and because of them, I was. Before he could finish his sentence. The stepfather and the stepbrothers jumped out of the stands and pounded him to death in front of the entire courtroom. Needless to say, now he was definitely dead and now everybody knew how he died. So the brothers and the stepfather were arrested and the man was set free. The chassid came to the regina and said to him, what was that? This boy was dead. I saw him dead and I saw him melt. And the Rajina said, I will tell you a story of the Baal Shem Tov. He said, I don't compare. I paled in front of the Baal Shem Tov, But I learned from the Baal Shem Tov and from the story what he did that this could be done here as well. And this story went as follows. There was a baron, a pirate, and he had many, many, many houses many, many farms and land and houses and very wealthy and an estate of his own. He had a Jewish manager, and the manager was very faithful to him and the manager was very, very honest and the manager treated him with the utmost respect and he appreciated that he appreciated it tremendously and the poet said he's going off to France for a few weeks for vacation and he called the Jew into his office and he said I have to be honest with you I'm fed up with the life here in Poland. I am going to settle in France. Hey yes, he said, since I have no heirs. I have no children. I'm leaving everything to you. And nobody's going to protest. There's no one talking about it. There's no one to come argue with you. And lo and behold, the pirates went off, and everybody knew he went to France to vacation. And a year, and three, and five years went by, and the pirates passed away. And the pirates passed away, and the Jew was sitting in the same seat. He was running the situation until now, he kept running it. 30 years went by and it was totally accepted by everybody that the Jew is now the new landowner when suddenly a nephew came and said, I am his nephew, I am his heir all this belongs to me either you produce papers showing that he bequeathed this to you or you stop paying me back 30 years rent and then leave the land And this Chosid went to the Bashemtav and told the Bashemtav his dilemma. In those days there was a marketplace known as Leipzig. Shemtev told the Chasid, travel to Leipzig and the solution will be there for you. Khossid was obviously oblivious to what he totally did not know what the Bashemtav was trying to do. He knew the parrots had died. But if the Vashemta said that this is where his solution will be, salvation will be, he's going. And he went to Leipzig, he took a hotel, and he started to walk the streets to the marketplace. And he did so one day, two days, one week, two weeks. On the third week out of Shabbos, on a Friday, he was getting ready to pack his bag and go back to his hotel, and started to have his doubts. Is this really what he's supposed to be doing? Did he not hear right? Did he not think right? What was going on? When suddenly a tremendous rainstorm broke out. And everybody ran for shelter. And he ran for shelter as well. And as he stood in the shelter behind, under this little, little roof, whatever it was, with... Packed with other people, tens of people. He bumped into the person behind him accidentally. I mean, you got, you know, a couple of hundred people under a canopy, obviously you're going to bump into somebody. And he turns around to say, excuse me. And there is standing the parrots, the old landowner. And the landowner says to him, I understand you're having a problem proving that the land belongs to you. Come into the building. I will sign you a paper with my seal and nobody will be able to doubt that this is your land. Said the Regina, the regina. I saw the Baal took somebody that was dead for 30 years. And used him to save a Jew. I figured a guy that's dead only for one week, I could do the same thing. So he brought him back. (laughs) Open miracles. Let's fast forward to the 50s. In the late 40s actually. Early 50s. Korean War was drafting American soldiers. American boys are in big trouble and this fellow came to the Ramash to the Rebbe some say the story happened even right before the passing of the previous Rebbe and he came in for a bracha by the Rebbe that he shouldn't get drafted the Rebbe wished him success he came out and he did not feel that this was it, that he did it right Mind boggling. The Rebbe told him something. You went to ask the Rebbe and yeah, yeah, he didn't like it. So he told somebody else. And the guy said, Also, you got to get something concrete from the Rebbe. He managed to get another audience. And he came back in the next audience and the Rebbe said to him, Have you got any problems with your back? Ha Problems with my back. Look, Rebbe, he takes it out of the pamphlet. Out of a folder, a whole file on his back problems. Any problems with your feet? He says, Yeah, Rabbi, he shows him the problem with the feet. Blood pressure, he shows Rabbi, the problem with the blood pressure. Everything is documented from the doctors, all the problems he has. And the Rabbi said, What about your teeth? Uh, Rabbi he says, My teeth? My teeth are so healthy. I never even had a feeling in my life. My teeth are perfect. Tell them you have a problem with your teeth. Rabbi, I told you I have nothing on my... T-. At this point he saw that Rabbi was finished. He backed out. And he was quite nervous. And he's marching from doctor to doctor in the draft board. Shirt off examining and they're asking your back, it shows shows the documents. your head, blood pressure it's all nothing worthless, sit down buddy he saw they're going to sign his papers off and he's getting drafted he remembered the rabbi told him the teeth what can he lose? my teeth, he screams this is your teeth, what's wrong with your teeth buddy? my teeth, I have problems, terrible problems Listen here, buddy. He said you have problems, I'm going to send you to the dentist. If he sees you don't have a problem with your teeth, you're going to jail. You're not just going to get drafted. You're going to military jail because you're playing shtick here. We read what you Jews are like. Kids, he walks in to the dentist. dentist sees a nice Jewish boy with a nice Jewish name. The dentist wasn't much of a Jew lover. And he starts to scream at him. What are you doing here? You need your teeth checked out. You want a free dental? You want a free dentist to check your teeth and fix your teeth? You think that's what the government and the army is here for? You think that's what we're going to do for you? We're just going to give you free checkups? And take care of your teeth, all your problems in your mouth? That's what you're coming to the army for? You're not getting it. I'm sorry, buddy. You're not going to take advantage, you bloodsucker Jew, what you are. And he took out his stamp and he said, boom, unfit. And he sent us. he sent the chassid home. He said, you are not fit for the army. <laughs> he wouldn't... He disqualified him on the basis... on the basis of his not, un, being unfit because his teeth were no good. He wouldn't let him even tell... He wouldn't give him the satisfaction of telling him the teeth are no good. story almost ends there. The chassid. Came back to 770 and wanted to tell the Rebbe. The Gabbayim said, You're not going back in. Write in a letter. So he wrote a letter to the Rebbe saying that what went on in the board and everything else by the draft board, and he said about his teeth, and the guy stamped it and threw him out. So the Rebbe told the Gabbay. Generally, a miracle has to happen in a way that it looks like it's natural. This guy did not believe in the natural. I had to do a miracle that this guy is going to see. It's an open miracle. And therefore, he was sent this way. So we turned to Zezchukas HaTeda instead of Zezchukas Pora this is the Chukim, as we know, we've explained many times, we go back into many parts of the archives, discussing the difference between the Chukim, Mishpatim and Edus. Chukim are mitzvahs that we do not understand, that we do not have a reason for. And these are the Chukim of the Teda, says the Teda. Not just, this is the Chukim of Paraduma, but the Chukim of the Teda. In essence, the mitzvah of paraduma, of bringing the paraduma, to purify a person, was a stirot menei It was a total contradiction, one to the other. How so? A person was impure because he touched a dead corpse. He went to the Kayin, and the Kayin prepared the ashes of the heifer. had to be a pur- pure red Haifer, etc. And they sprayed him, mixed with special water and everything, they sprayed him with this, and he became pure. But the Kayin preparing and spraying this became impure. That same liquid that made the man pure, made this man impure. Total opposite one of the other. What happens here? That classifies it as a chukim, as a chayik. It's a chuk. We don't know. We don't understand the reason. The question is, who wants to be Impure. Today's days, yes, somebody who wants to be a millionaire? everybody comes running. <laughs> who wants to be impure? Can you imagine? Who wants to be impure and a handful of people raise their hands? I want to be please make me impure. I want to carry a dead body or two. I mean So when they're drawing lots for the jobs, <laughs> can't tell that joke. When they're drawing lots for the jobs who's going to draw the lot saying that he has to go become impure? Who's who? The invitation? Weddings? Behind the couch? If I can guess. Someone has to prepare this and someone has to spray to become Impure. But why is he doing it? He's doing it not because sometimes there's more than one person that was impure. Sometimes there's more than 10, 20 people that were impure. And they all got sprayed at the same time. Tells us the Taylor, Zeyesh Khukas HaTaylor, not Zeyesh Khukas Paraduma. This is what Tera is all about. You have to go out there and be to help another Jew. The pure abnegation that a person has to help a fellow man. He's not just inconveniencing himself. He's taking himself to a level of impurity. So that another person can become pure. The pure, pure intentions behind this. The charity... Of a person to give with such devotion for another Jew. When it comes to charity, we tell people give until it hurts. Expression. We don't want you to give when it hurts, we want you to give till it hurts. Many people only give when it hurts when there's a problem, there's a predicament, there's a situation, oh, quick, what can I do to save myself, to save the problem? And one of their solutions is giving charity. They figure they could buy off God. The Rammam writes, there were nine parah dumas. From when the mitzvah was commanded until the second temple was destroyed, there were nine red hyphers sacrificed. And the tenth one will be prepared by Mashiach Tadkeno. Where is she going? Ah, okay, no way. The tenth one will be prepared by Mashiach Bimheda, The Mehera Rambam writes should quickly be revealed. Allow us to introduce Rambam. For those of you that are not yet well versed enough as what, Maimonides, the Rambam writes in Yad Ha-Gazoka. he calls his Yad HaRazokah, Sefer HaLochis It is only laws. He does not tell stories. He does not bring down historical moments. Rambam is written only with halacha. In that case, what halacha is there, what significance is there for the Rambam to tell us that Mashiach is going to bring the tenth one? And why is he counting the first nine? Perhaps we could say, "In Tana, is pshat them as drush and seid. This is not pshat. This is probably closer to drush, where we are going to derive. According to the Chazal, to our sages, it is brought down." And the Yisrael of Israel obeyed him. Himtinu mayshe Israel the mayshe. They ate eagle. They the Goliath the Amalekites the head. Had the Jews waited for Moshe Rabbeinu to come down from Sinai and not sinned by the golden calf they would never have been in exile. And the angel of death would never be able to reign amongst us. Wow! So, therefore, death and exile are punishments that are still reigning through because of the sin of the golden calf. Wow! How powerful can that be? In the days of Mashiach, when Mashiach comes, the concept of death will cease. People will no longer die. Totally eradicating the concept of death, And the Almighty will wipe tears from anyone's faces. For the ultimate forgiveness for the golden calf will happen when Mashiach comes. Since the concept that causes death, which is the golden calf sin, is going to be forgiven, so death will no longer happen this is therefore what the Ramam is saying number 10 is mashlim the entire cycle it's a misper hasholim. we come to a completion with the number 10 and therefore the Ramam is hinting to us that in the days of Mashiach when the kapara will be complete for the sin of the golden calf then the entire concept of death will be obliterated. the impurity will be wiped away. The spirit of impurity will be wiped away from the, the land. V'yasa melech has and therefore melech HaMashiach will make the tenth one, and it will become tushlum legamri atara And therefore, once that tenth one is spraying the ashes, then everyone will be totally purified from Thomas Mace. Hence we find the Halacha in this. The Halacha being, the law being, that the sin of the eagle is in a constant battle for us to repent for it. And therefore, our form and our actions of repenting for the sin of the eagle. What was the sin of the eagle? The sin of the eagle was the golden calf. The Jews were very materialistic. And they wanted gold only. When they came later to building the temple, we find times they generated copper and silver. In this case here, only gold was good enough they didn't want to though give up their own gold and Aaron recommended and knowing what would happen that they asked the wives for their gold the wives obviously gave them a swift kick in the pants and the fine so the men then took their own gold their nose rings whatever they had at the time and they gave their gold for this golden calf this my friends is the ultimate Ave of the generation the almighty dollar it's an Ave that we all unfortunately find ourselves Chas succumbing to <coughs> or just chasing and hounding us. The almighty dollar is something that people feel they cannot do without. The almighty dollar is something that people feel I worked so hard for it. It's mine, because I have it. And the fact of the matter is, it's all on loan. It's all on loan from God, and God will tell you where it has to go and when. And therefore, we need Mashiach to tell us that the Egel Azov, that golden calf each and every one of us has still a remnant of within us, is over. We are forgiven, it will be taken out of us. Thereby eradicating any impurities. The truth is, we tend to scratch our head. We look at certain happenings and certain things that go on, ongoings, and we say to ourselves, What's going on? Can we actually still be considered impure? Can we actually still be considered as sinners? Elio Herman. Uh, Nice little Hungarian boy. He was 10 years old and World War II broke out. World War II wasn't near Hungary not going to bother us. So he thought, Mebech. In those few short years, four and a half years later, when the Hungarian Jews and communities were being collected and sent to Auschwitz, Eliyahu was sent as well. And many selections he lived through in Auschwitz. He was always sent to the right. Now that first selection, his parents were sent to the left he never knew what that meant, but the people spoke whispers that the smoke coming out of the stacks, the smokestacks, were the ashes of their beloveds, of their loved ones. Eliyahu was fit, unlike the average 14-year-old. And as he arrived in Auschwitz, he realized there wasn't much he could take with him from his home and the only thing he did take was his tefillin and he had put his twillin in his pocket and when he came to the lineups and to the selections he saw what was going on he acted as if he was tying his shoe, he bent down he took his tefillin out of his pocket and he wrapped it around his leg And that's where he concealed his tefillin always wrapped around his leg. We're not going to go into if that's permissible or not. In those times, everything was permissible. Those Jews did nothing wrong. Throughout the time in Auschwitz, the food was getting less, the punishments were getting more severe. Elio had that one hope, his tefillin. the day came and the word started getting around that the Allies were coming in closer and the was also full of trepidation and one night they were all called out of their bunkers, all 20,000 prisoners and they realized the Germans could not shoot 20,000 people and kill them because there would be too much evidence for the Allies to see So they started to take them for a march deep into the woods to a very concealed concentration camp. Hundreds of people fell by the wayside, did not survive this march. And they were off to Gunskrachen. And they arrived in Gunskrachen, and Gunskrachen was worse than Auschwitz. The food was less, the conditions were worse. But after a few days, after a few weeks actually, he started to realize that the people, the Germans were starting to run for it. And a lot of them were just deserting out wherever they can jump out of, and they were running away. So the actual vigilance, the actual guarding was not so severe, not so strong. One day during the work day he saw a pile behind the bunker, the barrack which looked like a uniform. So that night he sneaks out he was a tall boy and he opens this package and he sees it's actually a commander's Nazi commander uniform. A commandant. He puts it on and he straightens himself as much as he could to work with the swagger of the German. And he starts to march his way out. And he figures they're going to salute him as he walks by, and they better salute him because he has no papers. If they stop him, he's dead. And lo and behold, he gets to the gate, he gives the salute, they salute to him, they open the gate, and out he marches. When he got out of the arm's distance, the eye's distance... He ran for it, and the first thing he did when he was far enough was unwrap the tulip from his leg and put it on his put it in his pocket. And now he realized it's a run for life, and he ran and he ran and he ran. He fell and he ran and he fell, freezing bitter cold conditions, and finally he fell by the roadside and we could not move any longer could not move another inch. And he hears the rumbling of jeeps. And he says, oh no. If these are German jeeps, I'm finished. I'm caught." Then he realizes, if it's American jeeps, I'm in bigger trouble. I'm wearing a uniform. Mm-hmm. He starts to try to fumble with the buttons His hands have never too frozen. He couldn't open them. And before he could move, the soldiers were upon him. The American soldiers, seeing the uniform, had their guns drawn. And they said, empty your pockets. And the old reached into his pockets and tremblingly brought out his, brought out his tefillin. And the, the commander, the American commander, screams to him, You're Jewish? So the, child, the boy shook his head. So he says to him, Zog Shema Yisrael. Say Shema. And he started to say, Shema Yisrael Adinoya Eloheinu Adinoya Chod." Soldier, the American soldier heard this, he fell on him and started to cry and to hug Eliyot, realizing this is indeed a Jew. And they cried on each other and he was saved. And again, the story does not end there. Because Eliyot had wrapped his twillen around his legs throughout the war, they were wrapped tightly, it suffered. And as he got a little older and he moved to Israel, his leg had settled in with diseases, and they wanted to amputate the leg of Rahman son. And he came to the hospital, And the surgeon, the professor, was an atheist. And this atheist professor was having a good laugh at this Jewish boy lying there. And the boy looks at him and says to him, Can I ask you a favor? he says, Sure. I don't think I'll do it, but you can ask. He says, I have my twillin. I want to take my twillin in with me to the surgery. The doctor started to laugh and scream and yell. Are you off your mind? That filthy bag of twillin you're going to take into the sanitary s- surgery for having your amputation? It's an impossibility. It's a this, it's a that. says, what's so special about these tefillin? He says to him. And he always starts to cry. He says, these are my tefillin that I took with me to Auschwitz. The big atheist doctor, big Israeli atheist doctor looked at him and his strong, firm, satirical look melted in an innocent and he began to cry and he said, I have not put on twillin since my bar mitzvah. Can I put these on? And the doctor put on these twillins that went through Auschwitz. He put them on. First time since his mitzvah. he putting on twillin. He put on these twillins before the surgery. They went into the, they told the nurse to take it and to wrap it up into a special bag. <laughs> And they went into the surgery surgery was over and he's waking up and the doctor's standing there smiling and he says to him sorry, I'm happy to tell you my son we saved your leg we were able to operate and save the leg so he says Baruch Hashem, thank you so much doctor for saving my leg he says, no I didn't do it So what do you mean you didn't do it? He says, your twillin did it. The way they were typed? On the... No, the twillin. The fact that the were in the room. This atheist doctor, Zapikarius, is telling him the twillin saved his leg. Just one more very quick. Vatera for the Pasha, which is extremely important to a daily life. As we spoke, one of the main stories of events in the Pasha, <coughs> I want to talk about the, the snake as well and the serpents, but I don't believe we have time. Moshe Rabbeinu is, said, is told by the Almighty God when the water ceases to go speak to the rock, speak to the stone, but he says to him, Take your brother Aaron and Kachas Hamateh, take thee staff. Ha is always the Russian of Hey Ayyaduah, the famous staff. Vidibartem, you should both speak to the stone. Moshe was destined to speak to the stone. Why plural Vidibartem, plurally they should speak to the stone? What is the connection? Moshe had his staff. And Aaron had his staff. We met Aaron's staff last week. Aaron's staff last week blossomed and sent out shkedim and flowers. The Almighty tells to take the staff that just blossomed, a dead stick, a dead piece of wood that just blossomed, and let the staff speak to the stone." Because the stone is going to say, I'm a stone, you can't take water out of a stone. This is going to be a lifelong quote. This is going to be a lifelong quote. He thought he was on candid camera, the stone, when he said this. Because he said, he made this quote, you can't get water out of a stone. And forever and ever they've been quoting this. Can you imagine all the teda, all the things that it says in the teda, that we don't remember, and all the mishnas that the Tanayim and the Avurayim have quoted. And whose quote does everybody quote till today? The stone, it says you can't take water out of a stone. It's amazing what the world doesn't come to today. He says you can't take water out of a stone. So the staff said you can't take almonds out of a dead stick either. But I did it because God needed to be, have His name sanctified. So to sanctify God's name, I blossomed. To sanctify God's name, gave water. Let the staff explain to the stone what it means to sanctify God's name. And this is also, as we see now, the end of the Pasha, the Lashon Hara that was spoken against Moshe Rabbeinu and against God. And God said, take and make a serpent of fire for your honor, Moshe, because God was so concerned with Moshe's honor that they spoke against him. How do you speak against Moshe Rabbeinu or against any Jew for that matter? So the great concern that the Almighty had for Moshe's covered for his honor, he said, "Make a serpent of flame, of fire, and let them watch. Let them look at this. And anyone who is bit by the snake will be healed." And Moshe said, "No. He makes one out of copper, not to take on his covered, but the covered of the Almighty God." You're not repenting to me. I did nothing. Don't worry about me. I'm good. But to God, you have to repent properly. And therefore, He makes one out of copper. And the Yamada tells us, what is the idea of the snake up on the staff? The idea was that when the Jews lifted their eyes up, they lifted their eyes up to heaven. And they knew that there's a God above us. And by knowing a God is above us, they knew what they did was wrong. And therefore they knew they had to repent for it. And even in a sin that's between two people, there is forgiveness, and everyone can and should find forgiveness in their heart. And thereby, we'll be able to march through all the lands that we have to march through, to march to our ultimate march, in Yerushalayim, Iraq And this very Shabbos, we should prepare for the Geula of Yud Beis Tammuz, of which the Refilic Rebbe writes, not only I was redeemed, but the entire Jewish nation. And the same will be this week, with the entire Jewish nation, Sheyem Yisrael Yechunah. Anyone that calls himself Jew, is going to be redeemed, and we will go to Yerushalayim, in on this very Shabbos. Amen.